You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. So we welcome back uh, Daniel Pink uh, to the podcast. He is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind, Drive, To Sell as Human, and When. Um, he's written for such publications as the Harvard Business Review, Wired, and The Atlantic. And his latest book is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Enjoy the pod. <laughs> Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at the Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting to yes and. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Dan Pink, welcome back to the show. It is a pleasure to be with you, Kelly. Um, in two recent podcast tapings, uh, first we talked to Paul Bloom about, and he's writing about chosen suffering, right? Right. Um, and we talked to Whitney Goodman, whose work looks at how positivity can be toxic. Mm. Uh, and your new book looks at the power of regret. And I want to start our conversation by reading the last four words in the book. You write that, quote, regret gives me hope, end quote. Why? Because I, to my surprise in researching this book, this negative emotion, this thing that we tend to recoil from, this thing we, we tend to resist, that regret gives us the clarity to find the good life, that regret gives us a way to find what makes life worth living in a way that I didn't expect when I started on this process. And so, uh, you know, in, in doing this, in doing this research, I discovered that this philosophy very prominent in America of no regrets is complete bunk. Um, mm -hmm. And that, and that everybody has regrets and that if we deal with them properly, they can lead us to a better future. Yeah. This makes me think about like in improvisation, we normalize mistakes because they're mm -hmm. inevitable on the way to getting your success. Right. And so, but sure. But we're a very, uh, uh, you know, we have a society that's like not into mistakes, even though we all make them like constantly. And so what I loved about this book was first you sort of explain the no regret culture. And I, I do want you to sort of talk a little bit about that. But then it's sort of this like normalization of like, no, 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 this is a thing that exists and can actually be helpful in, in a variety of ways. And there's also a variety of ways in which it can't be. And that, that all gets explored in the book. Sure. You know, I mean, regret should be normalized because everybody has regrets. I mean, we can get, I mean, one of the things that I say in there is that 
if you don't have regrets, if, if someone's listening to your podcast, Kelly, and they say, oh, I have no regrets, I'm going to be alarmed because <laughs> I am. Because I'm going to say, okay, maybe you're four years old because like totally little kids don't have regrets. I'm going to say, you know what? Maybe you need to have some kind of fMRI and have a brain scan because the other people who don't have regrets are people with brain lesions or neurodegenerative disorders. Or I'm going to say, you know what? Maybe you're a sociopath. But Mm -hmm. except for little kids, people with brain damage and sociopaths, everybody has regrets. And, and the reason for that, and it's interesting that you go to, to, to those other two books that you mentioned, the, 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 the Paul's book about, um, uh, about the sweet spot. Yes. And then Wendy's book about, about positivity is that negative emotions are functional. We have them for a reason, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like you and I, our species would not have evolved to create second city, <laughs> Right. <laughs> All the other great, you know, invent penicillin and create Second City, the two great accomplishments of the last 300 years. Yep. Um, unless we had the capacity to feel bad. And, and, and it turns out that regret, which is a negative emotion, is our most useful negative emotion. There's research showing that it's our most common one. But if we reckon with it properly, and, this, and that's key, if we reckon with it properly, we can use it as an instrument to make better decisions. Uh, improve how we perform on the job and in school. And I think ultimately what it's about is find a deeper sense of meaning. Yeah. It's interesting that the scientists tell us this, but Buddhists seem to know this too, in terms of the, just the, right. I mean, there's the, it's the yin and the yang. It's like these things go together. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's funny you say that because sometimes when I write books, and, you know, I'm, I make the mistake of doing research, you know, so yeah, right. like, oh, wait, I'm the first person who ever thought of this. And then I look in the research and it's like, uh, no, um, you know, it always c- seems to come back to P- to uh, Buddha and Peter Drucker. They seem to have figured everything else out Peter before Drucker. the rest of us. <laughs> oh, that's the buddy maybe they're the same was... person, actually. You know what? Maybe. That could be maybe, maybe Buddha is maybe Peter Drucker was was Buddha reincarnated. A Viennese Buddha. Uh, yeah. yeah. How about that? If yeah, nothing else, if nothing else, maybe you and I should go to some studio and pitch that as a movie. Yeah, that's yeah, a buddy like, movie for sure. Yeah, no, no. Oh, buddy movie. So Buddha and Buddha and Peter Drucker go on the road or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's like Thelma and Louise, except for religion and management theorists. Yes, indeed. And that's a that's a winner. <laughs> that no one is buying that movie. <laughs> yeah, that's that that's a, that goes that goes straight to the demo we care most about. Yeah, Eight, yeah exactly. 18 to 24 year olds will love that. Yeah, they're they're going to know all about that. Um, there's a few really like not there's more than a few, but you, you have some killer sentences uh, in, in this Thanks. book. Uh, and one of them is, quote, human beings are both seasoned time travelers and skilled fabulists. Uh, so tell, tell us what you mean by that. Well, that's that's what allows us to experience regret. And uh, so part of it is one of the things that's remarkable about about us is that we can travel in time in our heads. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the, the very act of having a regret is is kind of spectacular in the sense that what we have to. Do, so let's say that I have a regret about but let's say I have a regret about um, uh, so, something something mundane, like like not uh, not traveling when I had an opportunity to travel when I was younger. All right. So what do I do? I go in my time machine. I go back in time to that moment. When I had a decision to make and I chose not to travel, I undo that. I tell us, I come back in time and tell a story of what my life would be like had I done that. 
mm-hmm. and I have a different ending to the story. It's it's the, the cognitive dexterity required to travel in time and rewrite a story is spectacular. It's something that our brains do, which suggests that we do it for a reason. And I think that we do. We do it because when we look backward and actually acknowledge our mistakes, as you're saying, you know, as often happens in improv, if we look backward, acknowledge our mistakes, we can extract, if we do it the right way, we can extract a lesson from them and then use that to go forward. Uh, and as far as we know, we're the only species that can do this. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know what? I mean, do we know that for sure? No. Uh, do cows do this? I'm going to guess no. You know, I, I'm going to, you know, I, I, I really don't. I really don't. I, I really think that it is one of the things in our evolved brain that makes us different. And most things that evolve in our brain are there for a reason, There's a reason that the people who had the capacity to experience regret have survived. If it was completely debilitating, it would have been likely would have been uh, extinguished from our species because the people who experienced it would have not would have perished and not found mates and wouldn't have been able to reproduce. Uh, so in the book, you talk about uh, at least and if onlys. Um, and I believe you start that chapter by talking about the faces of Olympian medal winners. Oh, yeah. This is a famous study. Uh, I, there's, a, there's a famous study, but it, it, it's uh, from the 92 Olympics uh, where they, they showed the photographs of Olympic medalists on a, a platform. And so you would think that the happiest person would be the gold medalist. The second happiest person would be the silver medalist. And the third happiest person would be the bronze medalist. And you would be wrong. It turned out over and over again, and this has been replicated multiple times. Uh, and I actually have some photographs in the book that, that, that bear this out, that the happiest person by far, when you look at their face, they're beaming the gold medalist. But the second happiest person is the bronze medalist. They're pretty freaking happy. And the person in the middle who's just finished, this been declared the second most able person in some athletic competition in the world is not that happy. Is actually a little unhappy, and the reason is that the bronze medalist. You have to. We all we all are comparing. We're 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 doing what's called counterfactual thinking. We're mm-hmm. wondering how the world would have been once again using our fabulous skills. How the world would have been in another set of circumstances. So the the silver medalist is saying, "Ah, oh, if only I had pedaled harder." Or punched harder, I'd be a gold medalist. This, the bronze medalist is saying, oh my God, at least I got past that guy who's now in fourth place and doesn't have a medal. Uh, and, so, and so at the heart of regret is our ability of, for counterfactual thinking. And when we, you know, if onlys, are, uh, if onlys uh, hurt, but help us do better in the future, but at least, which are useful in many cases, uh, are, make us feel better. Um, and then those can be useful too. There's a few different uh, parts of the book where you talk about timing and yeah. distance. Uh, and this is interesting. Whenever those words come up, because my wife is currently finishing her book on comedy theory, and uh, her one of her theories starts with the fact that um, comedy also al- always has recognition, some measure of pain, and some measure of distance. Um, and that it's like levers on a mixing board that you're mixing around. That's interesting. 
Yeah. And, and I just think about that in terms of like, well, it makes sense if you're mapping a joke, right? So like we're trying to make a bunch of human beings laugh at the same time. That's pretty freaking hard. Um, but it, it, but what you're doing is you're messing with all the things and the ways we think. And so it's, 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 there's in some ways a, a kinship between that because it's, it is the, this idea of like where you are in the distance and where you are in, in the time is going to dictate how you're going to have an emotional reaction to something. Yeah. And what, and one of the ways that, that one of the, um, you know, I, I talk about ways that we can actually take our existing regrets and transform them. And one of the steps is, is self, is self distancing. Mm-hmm. That is, and, and, and this is actually really important in a whole array of, of things. Uh, we're, we're generally pr- not very good at solving our own problems, but we're actually pretty good at solving other people's problems because we have that distance. So anything that you can do to provide distance. And so even there's some really fascinating research, a really good book called Chatter by a guy named Ethan Cross talks about this. And he's, he's at Michigan. He's done a lot of this research that talking to yourself in the third person is actually helps you extract lessons from your regrets uh, and, and certainly traveling in distance. So if I say, if I think about what decision should I make right now? Hmm, what should I make? What decision should I make right now? And I go forward in time a year or 10 years and again, time travel and yep. look backward and say a year from now, 10 years from now, what decision will, ha- will I have wanted to make that can yield some clarity in our, in our, um, in our, in our decisions. And so that it's, it's quite fa- I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of, we human beings are kind of cool, you know? <laughs> yes. We, I mean, we are, we can like move around in time and so forth. And, 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 and if we use those kinds of incredible skills properly, um, it, we can, we can feel better and do better. Uh, last time you were on the pod, I remember we talked about, um, negotiation a little bit and, and in, in many ways that's, that's, um, uh, looking, I tell the story often is when my book came out, um, I would go to the bookstores and see if it was on the bookshelves when I was go give speaking dates. And I, so then I'd see all these other business books, many of which were on the art of negotiation. Many of which mentioned, yeah. yeah. They, and they all mention improv, but don't go any deeper than like saying like, Hey, improv can be good. Um, you cite a Columbia university study about negotiators whose first offer is accepted. I found that sort of fascinating. Again, that lives in the sort of uh, time uh, aspect that we're talking about. And, and that's, that's decision hygiene, right? That, that we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, so if, if uh, imagine us and imagine it now, again, it's, it, it sort of goes against some of the improv credos, which is like you always hear and, and accept offers, but the, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm, um, if I'm, uh, if I'm selling something or, um, you know, let's say, let's say that I want to, let, let's say, let's say that I, I want to sell my house mm-hmm. or whatever. I, I, let's say, let's say I have a used car that I want to sell. And I, I, I say, someone comes over and say, Hey, Dan, can I buy you, can I buy your used car? And I say, okay, yeah, it's four, uh, it's $4,000. And they say, okay. I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> wait a second. I left money on the table. You clearly left money on the table. Yeah. And so when negotiators have that experience, regret doing that they and then reflect on that they end up making better first offers and becoming better negotiators later on and so that's the key thing about regret as a functional tool if we say if we take that regret let's say i feel regret at doing that and i say it doesn't matter uh feelings don't matter this is no regrets no regrets everything's fine all right I'm basically in delusion. If I then say, oh my God, I'm a terrible person. I'm the worst person there ever was. I'm a complete idiot. I shouldn't even be allowed out 
you know, in, in public with those kinds of negotiation skills, I'm just a wretched human being, then I'm going to go to despair. But if I sort of take that stab of negativity and say, whoop, that hurt. What did it teach me? It, teach, it taught me, maybe I should make a higher first offer. Um, and then I use that going forward. Then you have regret as a tool for doing, to doing better. And there's so much research about that. So these people who say they have no regrets end up leaving capacity on the table. Yeah, I, I thought about that in the context. Of, and obviously, you, you're not going to read this book and not consider your own regrets. Uh, and I was remembering when I worked really hard to secure the stage rights for the movie Slapshot with Paul Newman. And we one stayed, of the great yep. movies of the 1970s with the exactly. Hanson brothers. Yep. And so uh, we did a stage version up in our Toronto location. I'm like, this is going to kill. And it, we did not sell. No one came to see this damn thing in Canada, uh, uh, in Canada. It's about uh, but, hockey. I, but but unfortunately, like women buy most of the theater tickets. Oh. And if they're they're especially not interested in going to hockey. They're even probably less interested. And then I, of course, discovered that almost every sports related theater uh, piece has failed. Uh, oh, really? Especially in the, yeah, I, 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 uh, damn Yankees might have been the last thing. And that's that, barely sports. Yeah, barely sports. And so yeah. w- when, when inevitably someone around here is like, hey, I want to do this like Second City show around sports, I'm like, no, you don't want to. Um, <laughs> let me explain why. Uh, so, uh, uh, I'm curious when you did the research on basically polling around regret. Yeah, uh, were you surprised by? I, I was shocked by both what was the the arc of what was said that people regretted, and then the discovery uh, of what was really going on. And that seems like a central like turn in your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is. It is. So you know what I fa- what I, I what I was trying to do was get at the heart of what people regretted, and so I asked them. Um, and then I asked them to put it into categories. And this is built on some previous research that scholars have done. Uh, and, you know, and, and one of the cool things right now about our world is that someone like me in an office in Washington, you know, home office in Washington, D.C., but with, you know, decent computer setup uh, and some, you know, r- you know, pretty basic quantitative skills can go out and do some sophisticated survey research. And so what we found, and so I said, OK, I'm going to crack the nut. I'm going to figure out what things people regret the most. And I found out they regret a lot of things. It's not really clear. All right. So that's kind of a bummer. Um, but what I also did is I had a qualitative piece of research where I collected, uh, at this point now, we're up to about 17,000, 17,000 regrets from people all over the world. And what I realized in going through those is that the domains of life weren't that as important as what was going on underneath. Um, and I can give you an example of that. So um, I had huge numbers of regrets around the world that took on the same basic formulation, which was like X years ago, there was a man slash woman who I really liked and I wanted to ask him her out, but I never did. And I've regretted it ever since. So that's like, a, that's a romance regret. Yep. Uh, you have uh, other regrets saying, oh, I had a chance to start a business, but instead I stayed in this lackluster job. I've always regretted not going out on my own. Okay. That's a career regret. Um, then you, you know, um, and then you have regrets like, um, uh, people, um, uh, not speaking up. I wish I had asserted myself. Uh, I wish I had spoken up more. That's like a personal regret. And, and you realize like, they're all basically the same. 
You know, like they're in different domains of life. They're all about boldness. And what I realized is that around the world, and this is the kind of thing that's crazy about it. It's like around the world, there were these four regrets that everybody around the world seemed to have. And one of them was this regret about boldness, which is it's an if only, if only, if only I'd taken the chance. You get to a juncture in your life where you have two paths. You can play it safe or take the chance. And over now, some people who take the chance end up regretting it. But for everybody who takes a chance and regrets it, there are 25 or 40 or 50 who regret not doing it. And so what it suggests is that, and I think this is where it gets super interesting in these regrets, is that these regrets tell us what we value most in our life. And one of the things we value is doing something, learning, growing, taking a chance, leading a psychologically rich life. Um, There are very few people who regret There are some, there are very few people who regret taking the chance. And there are literally, I have thousands in my database who regret not taking the chance. Uh, One of the other uh, four core regrets is foundational, uh, which, which it seems in many ways, one of the most common, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Those are, those are regrets. So, so foundation regrets, again, it's, it's another example. So I have people who regret not saving enough money. Uh, That's a financial regret. I have people who regret smoking. That's a health regret. Uh, I have people who regret not studying hard enough in school. That's an education regret. But they're all the same, basically, to me. They're all basically you're 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 at a choice. You can you can do the work or not do the work. You can do the work or you can shirk. You can plan for the future or not plan for the future. And inevitably, we know what people regret. And so, um, and, and so you know, foundation regrets are are one of those. Foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. And again, once this, what this reveals is that one of the things we need in our lives is some amount of stability, some stable platform for our lives. We also need some, we also need some bolt. We also need that, that boldness. And again, this is a surprise to me because I, I, I found something I wasn't looking for, which is that these regrets are telling us something about what makes life worth living, what constitutes a life well lived. Yeah. Uh, when I, turned this on me, uh, the almost overwhelmingly, I had moral regrets, acts of unkindness, Yep. Um, or where I didn't have the information to then make the better choice for someone else, as opposed to like, I, I don't have a lot of regrets about, you know, the chance or any of that stuff, but it was definitely living in the moral, which you also say is like the smallest of the four categories. Yeah, but also one of the most, it, I think that one of the most interesting and one of the most vexing for people. Yeah. So I'll, gi- I'll give you an example. And this, and I say this personally too, and it's interesting you mentioned the thing about kindness, because I look back particularly on the first 25 years of my life. I'm astonished at that, my lack of kindness. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm embarrassed by my lack of kindness and, mm-hmm. and I've tried to, I have, you know, big regrets about that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and the good thing about, like talking about regrets is that you realize that you're you realize that you're not you're not alone. I think one of the interesting things about this category of moral regrets is I think there's something kind of heartening about it. So yeah. I'll give you an example. So once again, I go through these 16,000 regrets. I have this database that, you know, where I see the regret and I see where they're from and I see their gender and I see their age and I'm seeing oh da, da, when I was in middle school, I bullied a kid and I really felt bad about that. And then I'd say, okay, Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And then I'm like, Mike, this person's in their seventies, you know, and I have these people in their sixties and their seventies regretting things they did as kids. And I think what's, what's ennobling about that 
are, are, are heartening about that is that it suggests I'm kind of glad people are still bugged by that because right. it suggests that we want to be good and that, that, and that, that, that being good, that doing the right thing is part of a, is part of a good life. And when we don't do the right thing, it bugs us. And I find that kind of, I find that kind of heartening for me personally. I agree with you. I had some moral regrets. And when I saw, when these regrets came tumbling in, I'm like, holy crap, I am not alone here. No. Yeah. I guess. And when you think about it, it, it isn't surprising because it's those, those are the deepest and uh, hardest to reconcile and and you you can't undo no I, many of them you no. can't many of them you can't so certain kinds of action regrets that you can you know certain regrets of action that you can undo uh, but but some of the moral regrets are harder to are harder to undo and also harder to find a silver lining you can say oh you know, I'll give you a modest one that came up a lot for people who went to college. Um, you know, the number of people who regret who went to college who regret not studying abroad was breathtaking to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you could say, "Oh, I didn't study abroad in my junior year, but I met my best friend there." So at least I met my best friend and something like that, and I can sort of use that lesson to go forward. Um, where some of these other things are, you know, I bullied a kid in, you know, one woman I write about you know, was very unkind to a kid who was being bullied back in Minnesota 40 years ago. And she can't do anything about that. She can't undo that. And, you know, here I had a 50-year-old woman on Zoom crying about this moral transgression that took place when she was nine. Um, and, and, you know, so it's, 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 quite, it's quite remarkable. But I, I think that, you know, with moral regrets, it's the same thing. We're at a juncture. We can do the right thing or we can do the wrong thing. And when we do the wrong thing, for a lot of us, we regret it. And it bugs us for a very, very long time, if not the rest of our lives. All right. And the last one we haven't talked about yet is connection regrets. So take us through what that is. Biggest category. These are people. These are regrets about um, you have a relationship and it should be intact or maybe it starts coming apart. And you don't do anything about it. And I think what's interesting, I mean, this is, this is uh, sort of related to your don't put sports on stage. Don't put on stage how relationships really come apart because almost all of them come apart in profoundly undramatic ways. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. they, they drift apart rather than, you know, um, you know, when I was looking at these relationships, I was like, I need like a, give me a theatrical reference here. Like, I need an Edward Albee play here. I need people screaming at each other and hurling martini glasses at each other because they're so pissed and betrayed. Mm-hmm. And that's not what happens is relationships drift apart and all kinds of relationships. It's relationships with parents to kids, it's relationships, um, siblings, uh, friends. My God. The importance that one of the things this book taught me is the importance of friendship in people's lives. It really matters. And so friendships come apart very rarely with this explosive rift, but instead this slow drift. And what happens is, is that somebody wants to reach out, but they don't reach out. And the reason they don't reach out is that it feels awkward and they think it's not going to be well received. Mm -hmm. And they're always wrong. Yeah, It's not awkward and it's always well received. Um, and and I, there's a there's a story in the book where I, I tell the story of someone who had this regret, and in the course of talking about it, she decides to <laughs> reach out and actually screws up my narrative. 
So, <laughs> uh, it, it, yeah, we interviewed, I'm forgetting his name. He's at the University of Michigan at the business school, but he talks about strong ties, weak ties, and dormant ties. Yeah. And I remember yeah. At the at the beginning of the pandemic, or uh, you know, sort of being like, I I used that time to reach out to people I hadn't talked to in five or six years. Everyone was thrilled to have a conversation. Absolutely, that is. I mean, I have to say, for me, one of the big lessons, honestly, in this, for me as a human being, is always reach out. So, if you're thinking about, if you think to yourself, should I reach out? I haven't talked to so and so for X years. I, I have friends, people I was really good friends with who, for whatever reason, life intervenes and I haven't talked to for a few years. And then a few years go on and you're like, oh, it's going to be kind of awkward. And then a few more years go on. My view is that if you're thinking about reaching out, reach out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If the thought even occurs to you, reach out. Uh, 99 times out of 100, it's going to be less awkward than you think. And it's going to be very well received. Um, I have a few more questions. And then. Our, uh, we always end with a yes and story, and you've already done that before. So I don't know if you've got another one in your back pocket, but maybe maybe think on that for a second. Okay. Um, a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. And one is that you write about the importance of self-disclosure. So talk to us about why that is important when wrestling with regret. It's essential in wrestling with regret. Um, it's, you know, there, when, what I tried to do is lay out some steps that people can use to wrestle, reckon with regret. And the first step is, is, is disclosing it. Um, disclosing it um, relieves the burden of it. Uh, it. It allows you to begin to scrutinize it a little bit more from a distance. And one of the things, again, where we're wrong and, going back earlier to mm-hmm. what we were talking about, about how wrong we are about so many things is that we're concerned that when we disclose something, when we disclose something maybe unflattering about ourselves as a regret inherently is that by doing that, people will think less of us. And the research tells us people think more of us. They yeah. think better of us yeah. because they admire the courage of disclosure and they have a degree of, of empathy. So self-disclosure is extremely important in reckoning with regrets. Again, I kept being surprised by this. So I'll give you an example. So I got this, so I set up this website, World Regret Survey, where I asked people to contribute their regrets. And then I had as an aside, it's like, you know, if you want to be, if you want to opt in to be interviewed for this regret about your regret. Uh, include your email address. And I was thinking we'll get maybe, I was thinking we'd get like high single digits um, Mm -hmm. participation, you know, like eight, 9% of people um, saying, yeah, of course you can talk to me about my marital infidelity. Of course you can talk to me about how I screwed up this job. Of course you, you know, I'm like, people aren't, we had um, uh, about one out of three people opting in to be interviewed because they they wanted to talk about it. I, I had, you know, for the journalists in your audience, I I offered to some people in the book who are disclosing some pretty unpleasant things. Listen, you can go, I can only use your first name. Um, uh, you know, I don't have to say who you are. I can use your initials. Uh, there was one woman who I worked out a pseudonym with. And, but most people were like, no, you can use my name. And I kept, I go back to him. I'm like, are you sure? I'm yeah. talking about your cheating on your wife and having a baby with another woman, unbeknownst to her. 
and I'm using your name. Yeah, that's cool. Um, let me show you what I've written. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, you know, and it wasn't just like one person. It was over and over again. I was surprised. There were one, two. There were two people in the entire book whose stories I told, uh, you know, out of maybe 40, who one of them only allowed me to use his first name and the other one wanted a pseudonym, but everybody else was like, bring it. I didn't well, say that yeah. seems healthy. I, it's very healthy. Yeah. Very healthy. Um, and surprising and surprising. Yeah. That's, that's what's, that's what, again, that's what surprised. That's what surprised. Um, that's what surprised me is, is the willingness that people had to talk about it, but that willingness is a good thing. Interesting. It, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, we we developed at the University of Chicago a bunch of uh, bespoke improv exercises under the banner of Second Science Project, working with Nick Epley, among others, who you saw sure. in the book. Um, I don't know if I've ever told you about this, but one of the exercises uh, that my wife developed was called Universal Unique. And what you do is you have two people pair up and person A will describe a banal experience like how people grocery shop. And they'll say that to the, the other person for about okay. a minute or so. Then they'll take a beat. And then uh, we ask them to now tell the other person how you grocery shop. And the minute they do that with all this specific detail, it raises in connection. You find humor, you find like, insight into this. And it's, it's it, because it's a banal topic, people are shocked that this, this kind of self-disclosure would be important in any way. And, but it supports Epley's work, which is that we, we have an inherent unwillingness to share things because we think that people don't care or aren't interested. And they are. And, and you mentioned about the power of storytelling, too, because in doing this with specifics, you're telling stories. Uh, absolutely right. There's, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I was, I was really surprised by the, the, the Epley research that you flicked at. And that I mentioned in the book, which is, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a Chicago based story where they went on, they had the researchers go on a commuter train in Chicago and they, they had, they asked people to strike up conversations with, with strangers and they said, and asked them to predict what would happen. So how are you going to feel about it? How's a stranger going to feel about it? And they said, Oh my God, it's going to be awful. And people are going to, it's going to make me feel awful and people are going to hate it. And of course it made me feel good and people actually dug it. And yeah. so again, we are, we are, we are wrong about that, but you know, it's also, there's also, I mean, again, not to empty the room by talking about other psychological theory, but that, that exercise that Anne is doing has to do with um, there's, there's some, there's some work on, on construal level, like how, at what level do we construe things? Mm. And so we think differently when we construe at an abstract level, what is grocery shopping like in general versus the very concrete level of what's it like when I go to, I'm thinking about this myself, yeah, yeah. there's a giant grocery store. That's a brand name, not the size. There's okay. a giant grocery store, you know, two blocks from my house that I, I walk to and think about, okay, yeah. Well, if I tell you like what my giant is like, then you're going to construe this at a very, in a very, very different way. Oh, and I have a very specific routine, which involves always forgetting the reusable bags. Always. Which- I never, I never, I don't think that I've ever gone grocery shopping on my own where I've remembered the reusable bags. Like yeah. I, I've essentially, I've essentially out. I mean, sort of you were, you and I were talking about Annie Murphy, Paul's book, the extended mind. Yeah. I've sort of like outsourced that knowledge to my wife who brings when I go with her, they're always reusable bags. When I, when I'm at, when I'm at the local giant and I'm at the, the self checkout, I'm like, Oh crap. Yeah. For the 6,000th time in a row, I've forgotten the reusable bags. 
my wife's like routine is it involves going to multiple places. There is a butcher, there is a fish guy, oh my. a specific thing. Oh yeah, no, she has a whole and she's a really fabulous cook, but yeah, a whole other routine. And there's me forgetting the bags, getting the carrots that I always cut up for the dog, getting the bacon, uh, probably a bottle of vodka. I just I have a very specific yeah. like, routine it's the same stuff every time all right so uh there's so much more that we could talk about uh but we do always close the podcast by asking for a a yes and story um if you don't have one i have a prompt for you that i was uh, surprised about in the book i'll take a prompt i i i mean you're the best you're you're one of the best prompt givers in america okay all right uh uh a regret you talk about um is uh becoming a lawyer Oh yeah. And, and well, what's the, uh, what's the yes and inside that? Because I think well, the yes a- the the yes and is that I did go to law school. Yes, I went to law school, and and that's where I met my wife. So it had a it had a happy ending. It's uh, yeah. yes and is a form of it, it's interesting. I hadn't made this connection yet, and this is why I hate doing these interviews because I think of things that I should have put in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yes and and at least thing a, a regret are very similar. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so, so, you know, one of the ways that we deal with certain kinds of regrets is that we find the silver lining in it. And so I say, yeah, I shouldn't have gone to law school. I regret going to law school, but at least I met my wife. And so, so that's a classic, that's a classic, um, that's a classic, that's a classic. Yes. And, uh, just slightly further on this, like, so what, what, what is the regret in terms of that with law school? Um, the regret is that, well, it's, it's multi, it's multifaceted. So, and again, I, again, like, like that's not my biggest regret and it's sort of sure. like in the grand scheme of things, like who gives a shit one way or the other, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, well, it's a, it's a regret about, I think it's ultimately Kelly, a regret about boldness because um, what, what I really regret is not scrutinizing that decision. That is, you know, I'm like a middle-class kid from the Midwest and that was sort of like what you were supposed to do. And in a weird way, I never thought about not doing that because, you know, I wasn't smart enough to go to medical school. So I had to go do this. And mm-hmm. and and it was just like it was so thoughtless and so not bold and so conventional and so not intentional. I think that's the thing that bugs me the most about it. Um, and and then there were the then there were the opportunity costs of that. The, I mean, the financial costs of it. I mean, I didn't pay off my student loans until I was like 37 years old. And, wow. and, and I, um, and also just the opportunity costs of that. So here I am, a guy like, like, like one of the interesting things about, about the, the book is, is, is I found a surprising number of people who had regrets about never serving in the military. Mm. And, and that's something I've thought about myself. Like maybe it would have been better off serving in the military for, four years rather than meandering through law school for that same amount of time. Maybe I, you know, I don't know how to play a musical instrument. Uh-oh. Maybe I could have been better off, you know, learning how to play a musical instrument or, you know, um, I am inept at both French and Spanish. Like I'm not fluent in, a, in another language. Um, I can stumble. I only stumble my way, barely stumble my way through those things. The opportunity cost. What if I had gone and lived in Costa Rica or something like that, and I'd be fluent in Spanish? So, um, so it's a it's a wider it's a wider birth of things. Now, what do you now? Again, it's not a calamity getting a law degree, but you know it does. Um, and, and one of the things that it, I think that it does is that it 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 um, regrets can do if we really reflect on them is that 
if we can't do anything about them in our own lives, the advice and counsel we give to others can be informed by that. And right. so, so when I look at, when I look at my regrets and my mistakes, I try to use those to guide my kids. I try to use those to guide, you know, the, the misguided young people who come to me for the other misguided young people who come to me for advice. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. You can't help but reflect on this stuff. And I, I it, it's, there were various opportunities where maybe I go to LA and pursue a bigger, more flashy, you know, sort of job in the entertainment industry. But then that that's like, maybe that happens or, or maybe I flame out of there, but I can't look at here and be like, well, I stayed and I got married and I had kids. And then I developed this sort of legacy position at second city. And now I'm in a position to sort of like help nurture the next generation to hand off this sort of wonderful institution flawed as it is. Um, so, you know, but that's, but I, I, am also particularly good at telling myself stories and, and I'm, and I, all are. And, and sometimes yeah. those, and sometimes those, those, sometimes those, those, those stories we tell ourselves can be useful. They're not all yeah. necessarily negative, but what, what are your regrets besides regrets of kindness? I thought I, the the two things I, that were acts of kindness, but that was very related to not having the information. I, I can give you an example too yeah. on this. So uh, Second City, like many institutions, was hit after George Floyd got killed by the social justice movement, sort of looking at this traditionally white-run institution and sort of inherent systemic racism. And I'm uh, enough of a young, very woke liberal, you know, uh, middle-aged liberal uh, that to be like, yeah, okay, I could see that. But but there was a very visceral thing, which was uh, in in the sort of now opening ourselves up to saying, look, we're we're open to change, we're open to insight, to talk to us, and we a lot of, a lot of conversations. Uh, a lot of people talked about the artwork at Second City. So there's a very famous uh, illustrator, Bill Utterback, who would draw these drawings of the casts, usually taking characters that they were in the show. And as I and our new executive producer John Carr walked down and this is like we're in COVID time. So the theaters are empty and we start looking at the walls and I start seeing the artwork. And I'm like, Oh, that white person is wearing an Indian headdress. Oh, uh, a bunch of people are wearing Arab stuff. You know, like, like it was stunning. Uh, there, there's a, a, a Dan Castellaneta who's Homer Simpson sure. uh, had a sketch where he was Hitler. Um, so it's a cartoon drawing of Hitler, Yeah, but there's no context I, I know the rich history. I know what that scene is. Anyone walking on the street, if they don't, they really don't. And so I was like, talk about a reframe, right? I mean, it's like literally like taking art down the walls because it's like, oh, that hurt people. It yeah. hurt people. Um, and so it's those things as a, as a leader here, not recognizing that. And, I, and I, I don't blame myself in many ways because no one was operating with that information, but it was there to be found. And that's... Yep. That's what you sort of discover now. So it's like, but my, again, the way I reframe that is like, okay, good. I understand that that happened and I can now help work on making that not the, the place that, it, you know, young people are coming to. You look backward, you confront it, you extract a lesson and you use that to go forward. That's the whole, that's, that's, that's how we make, that's how we make progress. And that's why these kinds of mistakes and regrets are, are essential in yeah. our well-being. Yep. Yep. The book is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. Our producer and editor is Ashley Byhun, and we are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of each podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more or working with The Second City, go to www.secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive